Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles together once again to the book of Romans. We're in chapter 8 again, verses 12 through 17, our text. Now, we do want to make progress through the entire 16 chapters, but I don't want to rush through what many theologians refer to as the greatest chapter in all the Bible. This is chapter 8 here in Romans. Two weeks ago, we made the summit of the doctrine of justification when we planted our flag on verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we're in Christ through faith, we no longer have to fear God's wrath, his just punishment for our sins. Jesus paid our sin debt in full, didn't he? And and freedom uh, from the penalty of sin is is what we are. And if that were our only benefit, the only bit of salvation being uh, free from the penalty of sin, that would be enough. But as we study this book of Romans, we find there are many more benefits to justification by faith. As Paul states here in verse 12, we're no longer under obligation to the flesh. We no longer have to sin. So we're free from the penalty of sin in the future and free from the power of sin in this life through our relationship with Christ. Let's never forget what our relationship with God was like before we were saved. Scripture says we were dead, dead in sin, dead to God, dead to God's word and dead to God's people. It's worse than that, though. We were hostile to God. We were called his enemies. But when we were born again, it's not just that we were set to neutral. Um, It's not that there's been a ceasefire declared between ourselves and heaven. What really happened was our identity totally changed. We went from being enemies to being children. I was walking down the street with one of our staff members this week in the Keller City Center, and we passed by a storefront and on a display area in the window inside the store, there was a sign that read, quote, we have a product here that will stop the aging process, end quote. (laughs) I was interested. (laughs) And as I stopped and looked into the window, I could see not only the placard on the other side of the window declaring this product's worth, I could see the reflection of myself and our 20-something-year-old staffer And I said, if all this product does is stop the aging process, it's too late for me. (laughs) What I need is a product that reverses the aging process. So when God justifies us by grace through faith, it's not just that he stops the process of sin where it is. He reverses it. We don't just become neutral towards God. We become a son or daughter of the Most High. And what a glorious truth that I want us to explore together from enemies of God to children of God, the implications of being a child of God. Let's read our text, Romans 8, beginning in verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. 
And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. May the Lord add his blessing. The reading of his word. As we reflect back on the book of Romans, so far, Paul is making a continuous statement surrounding one theme, which is the doctrine of justification by faith. But section by section, phrase by phrase, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, he builds upon that theme with sub-themes and illustrations of that theme. And I think of it like a, a telescoping rod. When it's all compacted down together, it's one rod, but every time you pull out a new section, it reveals a new truth, and when it's taken out to its full length, you see the utility of it. Now, justification unites us with Christ through faith, which leads to a lifetime of what we call progressive sanctification, and a lifetime of progressive sanctification leads to assurance. That is the order of Paul's telescoping argument. So today, the next segment we want to pull out under the doctrine of justification by faith is adoption or sonship. Through faith in Christ, God declares believers forgiven and adopts us into his family. And we see several things from this text. And the first I want to point out is he shows us what the evidence of sonship is beginning in verse 12. He says, so then, brother, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if you, by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, first, we better establish what it means to be adopted by God into his family. You were born into a family. Some of you were adopted into a family. Uh, the idea of adoption was not originally in the Hebrew culture, the Jewish culture. This was something, though, that was very prominent in Roman culture. And Paul was writing to Romans, and they would have known instantly what he was referring to. Many times a, a Roman um, aristocrat would face his own death, her own death, and they wanted to leave an heir behind. Maybe they had a, a son or a daughter that had passed away, or maybe they didn't have any natural children. And so they would go out and they would find a person that they wanted to be their heir. And they would bring that person in and he would equip them and develop them and adopt them. And that adopted son or daughter had all the rights and privileges of being a natural born son or daughter. And this is the term Paul is referring to here when he speaks of adoption. See, God the Father sought us out, didn't he? When we were dead in trespasses and sins and he called a people unto himself that we call the church and he adopted us out of the kingdom of darkness which, as Jesus said, was overseen by the devil. And he said of oh, the Pharisees, and it's just as true of every lost person, you're of your father, the devil. That's the family we belonged to before we were saved. And he took us out of that through regeneration and gave us spiritual life and gave us a new name and gave us a new identity and adopted us. And now we can rightly be called sons and daughters rather than enemies and even better than being called slaves. See, Paul, already, Paul has already declared that one of the things that happens through regeneration is that we're set free from slavery, the slavery of sin, and we're set free to serve a new master. And if all we are are slaves of God, that's great, but it goes beyond that. He also adopts us into his family. And how do you know that's true? Isn't that 
possibly just wishful thinking or a fantasy. No, he says here's a clear way to know if this is true. It's found in verse 14. The evidence of sonship is progress and sanctification. Read it with me. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. They're one and the same. If you're being led by the Spirit, you're a son or daughter of God. Now, sanctification means separation, specifically separation from sin and sinful habits. Now, when we talk about sanctification, we do so from two perspectives. At the moment of conversion, God justifies us, pounds the gavel, declares us forgiven, and positionally, we are separated from sin. In the eyes and mind of God, we're as saved as we're ever going to be, and he thinks of us that way. But as Paul pointed out in chapter 7, for the rest of our lives, we're doing battle with the flesh, battle with temptation, and we make steady progress in this battle, and we hopefully are winning the battle, and it's a long, hard climb. That is called progressive. We make progress in sanctification. So a negative way of stating it is over a lifetime after we're converted, we decrease sin's frequency and intensity in our lives. Positive way of stating it is we become more like Christ over a lifetime. We grow in holiness and grace. But remember this chapter, chapter 8, is all about assurance. How can we know that we're truly born again? And look, I want to state for the record, unless there is any confusion, I want every true believer to have assurance of salvation. And I believe God does. Now, some of you come from faith traditions that do not want you to have assurance of salvation because they believe if you did, you'd go crazy sinning. That really is what Paul was facing here in the Roman church. He says, no, what will happen if you have assurance of salvation is out of gratitude, you will obey God more. So the proper basis of genuine assurance is found here in these first eight chapters of Romans. The evidence, number one, brought to the court of law that you are born again is that you are putting to death the deeds of the body. Now, notice I said putting. It's an ongoing battle. Paul says every day we have to mortify the deeds of the flesh. That's what the Puritans talked about a lot, the mortification of sin. Waking up every morning with a wartime mentality against your sin. Going to war with it. Now, before we were saved, we had neither the will nor the ability to put sin to death. But now that we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, he gives us both of those things. The desire, the will, and the ability to fight our sin. So if I could say it this way in economy of words, assurance of salvation is primarily the result of sustained sanctification. That is, as you periodically look back over your life as a believer, what you should be able to say is, I'm not what I want to be, but praise God, I'm not what I used to be. I have made tangible and observable progress in sanctification. That will give you incredible assurance that you are a child of God. Now, there's a warning here. Be careful. We are not saying that we earn our salvation through obedience. No. What we are saying is that the evidence that someone is saved is an increase in obedience. Dr. J.P. Macbeth, an old theologian from Southwestern Seminary, put it this way, quote, obedience is not the source, but rather the proof of life, end quote. In other words, we don't become saved by obeying. We show we are saved through obedience. Now, that 
tells us if the evidence or the surest evidence of conversion is obedience, then probably there's some things that people depend on for assurance that they have no grounds to, right? Here's some things that don't necessarily evidence sonship. Number one, intellectual assent to historical facts in the Bible. Just because you believe that Jesus died and rose again does not make you a Christian. Jesus said there's some demons who believe historical facts about the Bible. It's not evidence that you were born again that you repeated a prayer after a Sunday school teacher or a pastor one Sunday morning. It's no evidence that your name is on a church roll somewhere or even that you've been baptized or even that you attend this church regularly. Rather, sustained sanctification, which shows fruit, is the evidence of sonship. So next, let's examine the benefits of sonship. I know, uh, sonship, I know that's what you really wanted to get to today, right? What are the benefits that we are children of God? Verse 15 says, For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Well, that lists several benefits right there. Let's just break them down, shall we? Now, hopefully your own children, if you have them, either biological or adopted children, enjoy privileges and benefits that the neighbor kids don't. I know that's true in our house. We have four wonderful children, and they have a, a lot of benefits and privileges the kids next door do not in our house. Uh, one of them is they get to help dad in the yard most Saturday mornings. Um, some months ago, two of my older kids and I were out raking leaves, and it was uh, hard work, and we were sweating, and a dear lady that walks in our neighborhood in the mornings came by, and she stopped and looked right at me, and she said, are you paying those kids? I said, yes, ma'am, they get to live here. <laughs> but I, I, want my, I want my four kids to know they're, they're not my servants. They're my children, right? There's a difference. Children sometimes are called upon to work, but they're part of the household. They're not hired help. And so uh, last Saturday, uh, my son and I were working outside, and we walked in, and I flopped down in the chair, and he went to the refrigerator and he said, Dad, can I have a glass of milk? And it just struck me. I'm glad that he's a compliant child and he asked permission for things, but he'd been working with me all day and there was a hint of doubt in his voice that I was going to let him have something cold to drink. I said, son, I said, you're not my worker. You're my son. And if I have anything that would benefit you that is good for you, it is yours. You can have it. And I thought to myself, isn't that what Jesus said about our prayer life? Aren't we to come with confidence to the throne of God and make our petitions known? Not as hired hands, not as slaves, but as children of the Most High God. And yes, we need to be reverent, like you ought to be reverent to your own parents. But we ought to come with confidence. And so here's the first benefit of being a son or daughter of God is boldness and confidence in prayer. Boldness and confidence in prayer, but I'd say boldness and confidence in life in general. Paul says, what can man do to me? Right? All man can do is take my life and then I go to heaven. That's confidence. And we ought to have confidence as we approach our death. Not even death, Paul says here, 
in the eighth chapter can separate us from the love of God. I think it's exactly what David meant when he wrote the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. That's assurance. That's confidence that you are a child of God. And so he says, we've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. It's not just that he takes us out of one taskmaster and puts us under the care of another harsh taskmaster. No, he adopts us into his family. And he says he gives us a spirit, which means an attitude of a son and not a slave. So Christian, you don't have to go around defeated by life. We of all people should have confidence and boldness. Now I said confidence, not arrogance. There's a big difference. I'm amazed sometimes by people who seem to have great confidence in their own ability and they have no grounds for it. I'm looking at you, teenage drivers. And I'm equally amazed by people who seem to lack confidence who have all the grounds in the world. And I'm looking at born-again believers now. We don't have to shuffle our feet we don't have to go around anxious. We depend on the Lord. We are his children. So, so that's the first benefit, boldness and confidence. Second is intimacy with God, closeness with the Savior. Look at verse 15. He says, but that is instead, instead of a spirit of fear, you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You've likely heard this word Abba is an Aramaic word. It is. And most children learned it in the first year of life. It's daddy. Kids put those syllables together, don't they? Ah, ba, ba, da, da, da. And, and that's what they call their father. And it's a term of endearment and closeness and intimacy. There's lots of people in this town that call me pastor. Only four get to call me daddy. That's the difference. Now, how is closeness and intimacy developed in a family? It's by spending time together, isn't it? We had a funeral here a couple of days ago, and I, I had the privilege of standing here and saying to that grieving family, our God is not a distant deity. He is a sympathetic Savior. He cares about what you're going through. He's not suddenly surprised by what has happened here. He knows, and he's intimate, and he cares, and he loves you. But you have to spend time with him to have the assurance of that. He's not cold or aloof. He's not hiding his will from us. The Bible says he's a very present help in our time of trouble. In fact, my very favorite verse as it relates to the nearness of God is found in Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known to all men because the Lord is near. Now, we like to read that and think the Lord's second coming is near, and I believe it is, but that's not what he means in that verse. He's saying the Lord's presence is near. He's not hiding. He's not far away. He wants to be intimately close with you. And that is a benefit when you have assurance of salvation and you know you're a son or daughter of God is, uh, is through walking close to him, right? And, and so ultimately we're talking about assurance, which is the third benefit here is real assurance. The spirit himself, verse 16 says, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. I'm convinced that many of our social problems in our culture are symptomatic of the real issue, which is instability in our homes. And that's not always true. We've all known families who were great parents and did the right things, brought their children to church, taught them at home, and they had rebellious children. I'm not accusing anybody. I'm just saying 
in the big picture. One of the reasons we have so many social problems is that we have rejected God's plan for the home. A child needs to know they are loved. A child needs to have structure and stability. A child needs to be disciplined when they disobey. A child needs a protector and a provider in the world. In short, a child needs a father like our Heavenly Father is a father to us. And what I mean by that is that that child needs to know that their place in the family is secure. And that's what biblical assurance is, isn't it? The knowledge that your place in the family is secure, that you can't out your relationship to the Heavenly Father. I had friends growing up in other denominations, and they lived in a state of fear because they had been taught they were one sin away from getting kicked out of the family. Not so. That's why Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, do you remember? This kid was horrible. So horrible, he went to his dear old dad and said, Dad, I can't wait till you die. Give me my inheritance now. And the father gave it to him, believe it or not. And he went off, the scripture says, to a foreign land and wasted it in wanton living. That means sin. Found himself feeding hogs for a living and eating what they ate. And the scripture says he came to his senses. And he looked up and he remembered that there was bread aplenty in his father's household. And even the slaves ate well. And so he devised a plan. He says, here's what I'll do. I'll go back home and I'll throw myself at my dad's feet. and says, I'll be your slave, not your son. But his dad saw him coming down the road, which tells you what? He was watching for him. And as he saw him, he recognized his son. He ran to him and said, kill the fatted calf. Put a robe on his back and a ring on his finger. Why? Not my slave is here to serve me, but my son who has lost his home. Right? That's a big difference. And he says, this is the spirit. This is the attitude of sonship. It's not fearing that the next time I sin, God's going to drop an anvil on my head. No, it's the confidence that comes from a stable father. And a stable father, like the one we have in heaven, loves us too much not to correct us when we do wrong. That's why the Bible says, those the Lord loves, he what? He disciplines, he chastens us, he brings us back. But there is another benefit of being in the family of God, and that is future glory. When I, when I said earlier that if all we got out of salvation was, was we didn't go to hell, that would be great, but we get a lot more, we also get future glory. He says, and if we are God's children, we are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Remember the telescoping rod? Justification by faith. Inside of that, there's union with Jesus through faith. Inside of that, there is acceptance by the Father. Inside of that, there's adoption into his family. Inside of adoption, there is heavenly inheritance. So if we're joint heirs with Jesus, it probably is worth our time to find out what the Bible says, what Jesus will inherit. Are you interested in that? I am. Let's, let's look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, another great and wonderful thing deeply theological book of the New Testament. Hebrews 1 talks about those who have faith and talks about Christ being superior to anyone who's come before him. But before it says any of that, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, 
So not only is sanctification progressive, revelation is progressive, meaning that first revelation God gave us to himself is creation, and then he started having people write things down, and today we have the full canon of Scripture. Everything God wants us to know about himself we find in the Bible, and it is a closed canon of Scripture. And he has revealed to us through guys like Abraham and Jeremiah, Elijah and Elisha, some wonderful truths about himself. But now he says in these last days, in the last days from God's perspective, the time from Jesus was born until today. He has revealed himself and spoken to us, verse 2 says, in his son, that is Jesus, whom he appointed heir of what? All things. So our question is, what is Jesus going to inherit? All things. What are we going to inherit if we're co-heirs with Jesus? All things. Wow. Galatians 4, 7. So you're no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. My goodness. How could it get any better? It can't. Because Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we get to share his glory. Paul says in Ephesians, he has raised us up to be seated with him in the heavenly places. What are the implications of the truth and God's promise that he's lifting us up to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places and we are joint heirs with the one who is to inherit all things? What are the implications of that? Come close and I'll tell you. I have no idea. I don't. That just blows my mind. I can't even fathom the implications of that. I know this. It's going to be fantastic. Right? Right? It's going to be infinitely greater than anything this world has to offer. So why in the world would a Christian spend his or her life investing heavily in this world that's going to be burned up with fervent heat? Why wouldn't we have our eye on heaven where Jesus is and where we will be seated at the right hand of the Father? And so we ought to be investing our life in guys like Evan Esom and other ministries that the Lord is doing in the world, advancing his kingdom. There's a warning here, though, against over-realized eschatology. And what I mean by that is sometimes people read these verses that we're joint heirs with Jesus, and they, they think that means that we have a um, free ticket to live any way we want to. You've heard them say things like, uh, hey, the Bible says you're a child of God. You need to start living like a child of the king, which means you need to buy a better car. I picked up a man from, I shouldn't tell you this. I'm, I'm going to. Years ago, I invited a famous preacher to come preach here. And I picked him up at a very nice hotel where we put him up. And when I went through the driveway and opened the door and he sat down, I came back and sat and he said, you ought to drive a better car. First time I ever met him. It's the first thing he ever said to me. He's not been back since, by the way. <laughs> and, and maybe I should have. Now, if he'd said you should drive a cleaner car, that would have been true. <laughs> but what he meant is you should drive a more expensive car. And, and that's, that's a whole theology out there that, that if we're a child of the king, we ought to drive the best of everything and live in the best place and take the best vacation. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying there's coming a day where you're going to inherit everything, but there's life to live now, and sometimes it's going to be very hard. In fact, there's a guarantee that it will be. 
2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who want to live in the godly way in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There are obligations, thirdly, to being a son or daughter of God. He says, If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. That is the evidence that you are a joint heir of Jesus is you're willing to suffer for his namesake in the here and now. And of course, the Apostle Paul knew from which he spoke, beaten with rods, shipwrecked twice, a day and a night in the deep, in prisons often. Yet he says the sufferings of this present world were not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. But they're suffering in this life. Jesus put it this way, if you want to follow him, you have to take up your cross daily, which was an instrument of torture and death. Paul started this book of Romans, chapter 1, by declaring that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did he mean by that? He, he knew the implications of walking closely with Jesus. It could cost him his life. It could cost him friends and property and reputation. So he says, I don't care. This is the most important news in the world. I'm willing to suffer loss of all of that for intimacy with Christ. What about you? The Bible says, whosoever shall deny me, that's Jesus, before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You, you can't get the privileges and benefits of sonship without being willing to take on the obligations of sonship, which are suffering. What about you? Are you willing to publicly identify with Jesus? Maybe there's some here, you've been coming year after year, but you've never followed through and... Believer's baptism, that would make you uncomfortable or that would uh, make you embarrassed. Paul says he's not ashamed to be identified with Christ. What about you? Now, it's unlikely living in our culture you're going to lose your family. You might, depending on what culture you come from. Jesus says no one's lost father, mother, sister, brother that he hasn't given, been given more, multiple times more in this life and the life to come. Trust your heavenly Father, he will not deny you any good thing that would aid your sanctification and glorify himself. If you're a Christian here today and you've stopped praying for victory over a particular sinful habit in your life, start again. Wake up in the morning with a wartime mentality that you're going to mortify the deeds of your flesh. And that you're going to do battle with that sin until the day that you die. And if you're a Christian here that's truly born again and you've been struggling with assurance, believe the promises of God. That nothing can separate you from the love of God. That includes your own sin. You cannot out-sin the love of the, the Father. But if you truly love the Father, you will have a desire... And if you have the desire to obey the Father, that means you have the indwelling spirit. And he gives you a desire. He also gives you the power and the ability not to sin, right? So continue to grow. Continue to make progress in sanctification. Because the basis of true Christian assurance is sustained sanctification over a long period of time. Looking back and saying, praise God, I'm not what I want to be. Not what I plan to be but I'm not what I used to be. The Lord is making me new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that you don't give up on us.
because you chose us before the foundation of the world. You put your seal upon us through your spirit. Nothing can separate us from your love if we're truly born again. So, Father, it's my prayer, my greatest hope, that every member of First Baptist Keller has a true and genuine assurance of salvation who has a basis for it. Lord, if there are those among us who have never bowed their knee to the Lordship of Jesus and they're basing their assurance on intellectual assent of historical facts or the fact of who their parents are or that they come to church regularly, Father, I pray you'd show them the foolishness of that. Help them to understand the word we've heard today that the evidence of sonship is sanctification. May all of us walk in positional sanctification every day, but help all of us to pursue progressive sanctification for a lifetime. Lord, we want to represent you well in the world. We want to look like our Father in word and deed and attitude. And when that starts to happen and we start seeing that progress, Lord, we know it's going to lead to assurance, but it's also going to lead to thankfulness. Thank you, Lord, that you don't give up on us. Thank you that we can't out your love. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.